Well, uh, Drew is both the, the U.S. director for the Antioch uh, Network of Churches. We have, I think, over 30 churches around the U.S., and I think over 80 works internationally. Uh, but Drew's also a friend. Uh, he's a few years older than me, went to college with him, and uh, gotten to uh, be changed by Jesus together over the years, and a friend that my wife and I, he and his wife, stayed in contact with over the years, and so Drew is in speaking at our discipleship school yesterday, and we're honored to have him bringing the word to us this morning. So pray with me as I pray for Drew. Father, thanks so much for Drew. I'm praying, Father, that your word would come forth, uh, and I pray, would you open up our hearts, Lord? God, would you speak to our hearts? Would you, um, would you do a transforming work by your word as we are here for you, Lord, in Jesus' name? Amen. Hey, it's awesome being with you guys today. As Mark said, my name is Drew, and I serve on staff at Antioch Waco. I've been there since 2001 and on staff since 2003, and I have known Mark and Crystal for a really long time. I'll tell you how I met Mark. It'll be very unsurprising for those who know him. For about six months, or no, that's an exaggeration, maybe three or four months, we were trying to get him to come to life group at the church, and he was, you know, a little flaky and not quite ready to commit, and he never came to life group. I don't even know if he came to church. But then we did this outreach to Austin, Texas on Halloween night. It's like this crazy party atmosphere, and that was the only thing that Mark would come to. And I was like, everybody else is normal, and they come to church, they come to life group, then they go do the crazy stuff. Mark would not do the normal stuff, he would only do the crazy stuff, but look at us now. So it's a joy getting to be here. I currently serve as the U.S. Director for Antioch, like Mark said. Uh, we now have, actually, it's 43 churches across the United States, and it's been an awesome year. God's doing amazing things. In fact, this past year, we had the privilege of starting five new churches. So let me see if I can get it all off the top of my head. Uh, Washington, D.C., Kansas City, where I am from, Detroit, uh, what, what, where else was it? Fayetteville, Arkansas, somebody I love that I'm missing. you remember? <laughs> That's why you write that stuff down. And one more awesome church. Strike that from the recording. <laughs> But it's so cool going to these different cities and getting time and just hearing the stories of the way God is moving. And man, this is a great time to be part of the body of Christ in America. God's up to awesome stuff. Well, I also, I love getting to come to, to Fullerton. This is like the third or fourth year in a row uh, that I've got to come out here. And I always come the exact same Sunday, the New Year's Sunday. And so I am your official Antioch Fullerton New Year's preacher at this point. It's like three or four years in a row. Somebody make me a t-shirt. Let's just formalize this thing. But seriously, though, it's so cool getting to see how this church has grown and matured. And I always walk away from here inspired by your passion for Jesus and the extravagant of worship that happens here. So way to go. Thank you. Thank you for being an inspiration, for welcoming me, and for more than anything, for pursuing Jesus. So with that being said, Happy New Year, since that's my role with you, um, the liturgy of New Year. Happy New Year, Antioch Fullerton. It's the beginning of a new decade this year. Now, does anybody else, do you ever feel some whiplash around New Year, or am I the only one? Have you noticed how it's like we have Thanksgiving, we have Christmas, and it's this like six weeks of eat whatever you want, have fun with your family, take it easy, listen to Christmas carols, Christmas cookies are out. It's all awesome. And then like on one day, that's totally gone. And it's like, no more Christmas cookies. Go eat your kale. You know, time to get your New Year's goals out. Get started on your resolutions. No more lounging around. You gotta get after it. And it's like, we get one day. And I'm just like, can we ease into this thing a little bit, you know? 
Like maybe some Christmas cookies? Like what, why? what's the rush, right? It's like this whiplash. It's like one day you're on holiday, the next day it's not just back to normal life. It's like back to normal life with a vengeance, right? And that's our new year. Like who, whose idea was this? And I, I've started to notice, and maybe I'm gonna join them. There's like this, this group of secret society people that they just have rebelled against that and they decide to just stay in Christmas. Does this happen out here where it's, it's well into February and Christmas decorations are still up at some houses? And if that's you, like, way to go, you know? I, seriously, I actually had a neighbor, and this is not a joke, who they just opted not to take their decorations down all year. That's legit impressive. That takes fortitude and courage. And I was thinking about that this morning, though, and there's actually something profoundly theological about that. How do you live in Christmas, right? I don't think that person's a theologian. I just think they're lazy. But I got to thinking about a new year, and it's what does a new year look like living in Christmas? Or maybe another way of saying that is how would our 2020 look different if we understood the reality of what God did at Christmas? And that's what we want to dive into this morning. And I thought there's no better way to start off a new year than by going back to the gospel. So today we're going to be studying the gospel of John. Now, for those of you who study your Bible, there's a few different ways you can study scripture, and I think all of them are important. One way is to look at different topics in the Bible. So that would be, say, take the topic of forgiveness, and you're gonna go through your Bible and you're gonna look at all the different verses on forgiveness. So it's looking at it by topic. Great way to study the word. Another very common way is to go line by line through the scripture, where you take a few verses at a time or a passage, and you look at each word, you look at its, its meaning and how it fits and its structure. This has been my staple for the last two decades, and um, I've grown tremendously through studying the Bible this way. And I love about the word of God that the closer you look, the more powerful and the more beautiful you find it to be. But there's a third way of studying scripture that I think gets overlooked sometimes, and that's actually looking at books of the Bible as a whole. You see, each, the Bible has 66 different books. Each book of the Bible, God inspired somebody to write it, and this person, they had main themes, they had a main point, they had elements, just like any other work of literature, that are communicating what, they're, what God has given them to say. And I worry sometimes that we can get so focused on just looking at different passages or even going through line by line that we actually lose sight of the overall message. We get so focused on the detail that we can actually miss the main theme. So many of us, if you grew up in the church, maybe you are familiar with some passages from the book of John, but how often do we readily remember the point of the book of John? And how do you know maybe the difference between the point of the book of John and how is that different from the gospel of Mark versus the book of Acts? Or, you know, you can kind of go through, do we understand the main points? Uh, an illustration could be like this. If you want to watch a movie, what's the best way to watch it? All at the same time, right? And, and I think sometimes what we get this tendency in scripture, if we're not careful, it's like getting on YouTube and looking at different movie clips, but never sitting down to watch the whole thing. And when you sit down and watch the whole thing, you start to notice things that you miss if you're just looking at individual clips. You get caught up in the story, in the themes, in the emotion of it. And I'm not trying to say there's one right way, but I think we need to look at it all these different ways, and that's how we start to uncover the truth of God's word in a fresh way. So that's what we're gonna do this morning, is we're gonna be looking at the gospel of John and looking at the book as a whole. Now, obviously, I don't have time to 
in depth, uh, break down each part of it. So we're gonna mostly focus on the beginning, then look at some main themes that run throughout the book and how it all ties together and how it impacts our life. But the Gospel of John tells a story, and it's the story of the life of Jesus. And you know, every single person I have found, we all live with some kind of story in the back of our mind that we use to give meaning to our world. Have you ever realized that about yourself? Most of life, it's just kind of in there in our background operating system, but there is some story that every single one of us believes, and that story is what gives shape and meaning to our lives. It's some story, and then all these things that happen to us, we kind of filter it through the story, and that's how we live. It's just human nature. And there's so many things out there. You know, there's the, the common story in our culture that the way you have a fulfilling life is by having a successful career. And you know, when I say that, you're at church because you know there's more to life than that, but still, that's a story that at some level many of us believe. It's what gives us meaning in our life. You know, you get to a new year, you start setting goals, you start reflecting on your past year, and you're doing that all in the context of some kind of story in the back of your mind. And that gets very, very personal for us because there might be some common stories that a lot of people believe in our society, but maybe for you, your whole life, you feel like you have to prove something to somebody. And you live with this chip on the shoulder and maybe you're pursuing a successful career or something else because you've got to give meaning to your life and you feel like it's you versus the world and you've got to get ahead. And so that's what motivates you. That's what drives you. It's your story. But maybe there's somebody else. And for you, you live with this feeling it's the opposite. It's like, man, I can never get a break in life. Things never work out like they're supposed to. And that's your story. And you get to a new year and you're almost anxious because you're like, what's gonna make 2020 any different than 2019, than 2018? It's that word Mark shared earlier. That can become your story. And you start interpreting life through that way of things just don't work out for me. And we could go on and on. But all of us, we have some story in our mind that gives us meaning. And the power of the Gospels is an invitation for us to change the story. Because what if you swap stories? What if that story that said things never work for you, or even the story that says you've got to get ahead in this world and it's you versus the world and your own strength, what if those stories could be swapped out for something different? And as we study the word of God this morning, I'm not gonna give you anything practical today, so sorry if that's what you came looking for. The five tips for a new year, you're gonna to have to find that somewhere else. But I do believe that if we can double down on the gospel message of who we are in Jesus, if we can change our story this year, I don't know what your, near, your new year is gonna look like. I just know it's gonna be great because we're aligning ourselves with who God is and who he says we are. And ultimately, I found if I can get that right, everything else is gonna fall into place, even if it's difficult, amen? So let's dive in to the gospel of John, and we're gonna start where all good stories start at the beginning. So John chapter one, verse one through three. You're welcome to pull out your Bible. It'll also be on the screens and read with me. In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God or the, and the word was God and he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, if you have been familiar with the scripture, maybe this brings some other verse in the Bible to mind. And in the very beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, it starts almost identically. And I'm actually gonna read it here in a second. There's a famous Bible scholar by the name of N.T. Wright who describes John as writing a new Genesis. 
and he's writing these words and he's wanting to call to mind our attention that this ties in not just with what he's writing, but the entire story of scripture. And if we wanna understand the gospel of John, we actually have to go back and review for a moment the book of Genesis and the story of God creating the world because there's a ton of themes that are gonna play out in the gospel of John of what does it mean for God to recreate the world. So turn with me, we're gonna go back to Genesis. I'm just gonna fly through this and I'm gonna give you a few different details. They might feel random, but pay attention because I think you're gonna see how it all ties together in a moment. Let me read the first few verses of Genesis chapter one, the very beginning of the Bible, and you can see how it compares. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, he spoke his word, let there be light, and there was light. So what you see in Genesis is you see this empty world, this formlessness, this nothingness, and God speaks into it his word. Remember that from John. God speaks his word into this world, and God's word creates light out of the emptiness and out of the nothingness. And it's this beautiful poem, if you read the rest of Genesis 1, of God's word creating light, God's word then creating life, and then we get to the crown jewel of creation where God's word created humanity, God's word created men and women, and God made us in his image, and he blessed us, and he gave us a mission to fill and subdue the earth. It's this incredible story, and this poem is set in the context of a week, and on the seventh day of this week, God finished his creation, and then it's like he paused, he looked at how amazing it was, and then God rested, and it's like he celebrated what he had made. Okay, so then you go to Genesis 2. It kind of picks back up the story of creation. A few more details. In verse 7, it describes how God created man by forming us out of the dust and then breathing into us the breath of light. And then in verse 8, it tells us that God placed us into a garden. And the garden in the Bible, the garden in Genesis, it's like it represents God's perfect creation. And God gave man, he gave a mission to take the garden and to cultivate and intend it. It's like this image that's being given to us that we are God's gardeners, made in his image with his breath inside of us, with his power on us in relationship with him. And our mission is to take his garden and cover the earth with his garden or cover the earth with his glory. All right, so that, that's the beginning of Genesis. That's where the story starts. But like all stories, there's a plot and there's tension in the plot. And it's when we get to Genesis 3, that's where things start to take off. You see, in this perfect garden, God gave one command. And his one command was, you may not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, maybe you grew up with the Bible and you're like, yeah, that's true. But if you haven't grown up with the Bible, you're like, that's really weird. You know, like, what does that even mean? And I've thought about that before. It's like, why is the one bad thing that we have to avoid the knowledge of good and evil? You ever thought of that? Like, why not the tree of murder, you know, or the tree of hatred or the tree of armed robbery? Like, why, why the knowledge of good and evil? Why is that the sin that destroys the world? And as you read the story in Genesis 3, you kind of get an idea of what's going on where Eve is tempted, the first woman, and she's tempted by this tree and what it represents is mankind wanting to be in the position of authority instead of God. We want to do things our way. 
We want to be able to say what's good and evil. We want to have power. We don't want to live in communion with God where we're just under him. We want to be on the throne of our own lives. We want to be in control. Does that sound familiar to anybody else? I actually think you could summarize the whole of scripture with this one statement that mankind makes very bad gods. I think I could probably sit down face to face with each of you and we could summarize our lives with the same statement. We don't make good gods because we were never intended to be God. And Eve is tempted and then she leads Adam and he does the same thing. And by the end of Genesis 3, this beautiful poem is turned into a tragedy. And what you see is that instead of mankind being in this garden, instead they are cast out into the wilderness. Instead of them carrying the life of God, they have introduced death into God's good creation. Instead of them living with this perfect communion with God in the garden, instead now they are separated with no way back to him. And it's as though, you know, this formless, empty world that God created by the end of Genesis 3, it's in danger of reverting back into formlessness. And this is what sets in motion the rest of the Bible, and this is what sets in motion the book of John, because the question is, how do we get back to the garden? How do we get back to the life of God? How do we get back to our calling? And so you have to have all that in mind as you read the Gospel of John, because he's gonna answer that question this morning, and I believe it has just as much relevance for our life today as it did when he wrote these words. Okay, so we're gonna dive back into John 1. Let me pick up where I left off in verse 4. In him, speaking of Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness cannot overcome it. And so these first verses of John, you see that it's in the beginning. God is creating the world once again, and he's doing it by his word. And that, that word is very interesting in the Greek, the, um, the original language of the New Testament. The word is logos. And it was actually kind of a common philosophical term of this time. And both Jewish and Greek philosophers referred to it. And, you know, they meant different things. But it's kind of this idea of, like, this perfect God that we can't really know. And it's his natural laws that govern the whole world. And it's all perfect, right? And it was a common term that people might have referred to. But John is saying something crazy in these verses, and I don't know if you caught it yet, but this is, this is crazy talk. This is radical. This is like mind-blowing what he's telling us here. Because it's, it's not that God's word created the world. That's not controversial. What John is saying is that word became a person. And there is nobody who expected that. It's the story of Christmas, right? You know, the church historically has celebrated Advent in the weeks leading up to Christmas. And what Advent means, it's a period of waiting, and it's basically us saying we're in the darkness of what happened in Genesis. We're without hope. We are waiting for something. We're waiting for God to bring some kind of breakthrough into this world. And what John is telling us is that the very word of God that created the universe came to the earth as a person to live among us. That is crazy. And did you notice that in him was what? Was life and light. The very building blocks of creation are found in this person. And he has come to the earth to recreate the world. Only this time, what has John promised us? That the darkness is not gonna be able to overcome it. The world is not gonna go back into the emptiness it once was. Let's keep reading. Skip ahead to verse 10. That he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. 
Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So remember the problem in Genesis, right? We want to become God. And what we see in John is that same problem is still alive and well because even when God came to the earth after all this time of darkness and emptiness, we still weren't ready to receive him. We still don't wanna give up the throne. We still don't wanna say, God, we surrender. We, we were wrong. We can't be our own gods. We still weren't ready to give Jesus the authority. But there's a promise here that to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. And there's this little phrase that's actually really significant in John that's a theme that's gonna run throughout the book, but it's believing in his name. Believing is a major theme, as is this little phrase, is his in his name, and we're gonna see both of those here in a second. So we have the creator, the very word of God, coming to the earth to recreate the world, but the world is still not ready, still not ready to get off the throne and receive him. We still wanna do things our own way. But for those of us who are ready to say, God, my life is yours, who believe in his name, he's promising us life. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the first creation, the word created mankind. But in the new creation, the word became mankind. And this answers our question, how do we get back to God? The answer is actually really simple, that we don't. God had to come down to us. And that's what John is describing. Now, I'm gonna skip ahead a bit here. I wanna read one more verse from John 1. And I, I'm not talking about the role of John the Baptist in John's gospel, but that's actually really fascinating to study if you have some time. But I wanna read one little phrase that John says that's also pretty important for the rest of the book. In verse 29, it says this. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he said this, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a very bizarre introduction to give of somebody. Can you imagine like when Mark introduced me, he's like, look, Drew is here to preach, the baby cow of God, you know, to deliver the word. Or like, the lamb, that's not a very flattering description to give of somebody, you know? It's like, the baby donkey is here to give us the word this morning. Like, make it something cool, like the lion or the tiger of God, the grizzly bear of God. You know, like, what's the lamb of God? Like, thank you, I think, maybe. And we're 2,000 years removed from this, so maybe we lose some of the symbolism. But I actually think, even for a Jewish reader, this is kind of a bizarre greeting, because the lamb is the thing that you kill. It's the helpless animal that dies. That's still not a very encouraging compliment to give somebody, maybe even worse. And we're gonna see the relevance of that. You probably already understand it, but I think there's some symbolism that may be fresh that we'll get to here in a minute. Well, if you continue to read John 1, you're gonna notice something else, and you have to read closely. But remember how in creation, it's a poem that describes God creating the world by his word. And you see in John 1, all those elements are there. It's a poem talking about God recreating the world by his word. But just like in Genesis 1, in John 1, if you pay attention, the, the story is set in the context of a week. And I've got it up on the screen, so you can take a picture if you wanna look it up. And there's a little bit of dispute about exactly how this all plays out. But it's really clear, John is trying to paint this picture for us that God's recreating the world process has begun. It's a new week of creation that's taking place. And if you actually get to these, the last few days, it specifies on the third day, maybe a little allusion to the resurrection. 
And it's significant to me how the week ends at the very beginning of John 2 because it ends with a wedding. Remember, the first creation ended with a day of rest and celebration. The new creation week is ending with a day of celebration. And what is it celebrating? A new covenant that's happening. And this story, there's some detail that's really powerful. You gotta uh, really pay attention to it. And it goes like this. It's this wedding. And back in this time, weddings were multiple day-long feasts that people did. I've actually been to a wedding like this in Central Asia. I mean, it's crazy. So much food. You know, you're just constantly eating for days. Now, let me, let me pause because I'm a father of three daughters, and I cannot imagine if we did weddings like this. Like, I'm scared to afford the weddings that I'm gonna have to pay for already, but I cannot, like, feeding people for three straight days, that sounds horrible. So praise God, I live where I live. But that's actually kind of the problem with this story because this family, they ran out of wine, which would be a major embarrassment, probably beyond what we can even appreciate in our culture. And they ran out of wine. It's like shame that's being brought upon this family. And so Jesus steps up, and, this, and he asked them to take these jars. But they're not just any jars. They are these jars that were used for ceremonial cleansing. And it worked like this. These um, religious Jews at the time, they would wash themselves with water as a sign of purity so that they could enter into the presence of God. And in many ways, this was God's grace, you know? It's, he's providing them a way to cleanse themselves. But the thing about this ceremonial washing is that it was never enough to permanently cleanse them. So it was God's grace, but it was never enough to make them fully clean. They had to keep coming back and washing themselves. So it's the beginning of a new covenant. It's the last day of this new creation week. And Jesus says, get me the ceremonial washing jar, fill it up with water, and then he turns that water into wine. It goes from something to ceremonial making us clean to a new celebration of something. And he gives the wine to the master of this banquet, you know, the wedding coordinator. And the guy tastes it and he says, man, you have saved the best wine for last. And what's that trying to tell us? It's trying to tell us that God is instituting a new covenant and the best is being saved for last. What Jesus is bringing as part of this new creation is better than anything that's ever come before. It's a new celebration. And John tells us that this was the first of Jesus's miraculous signs that he did. And if you read the rest of the first half of John, you're gonna notice that there are seven signs that John talks about that Jesus did. The first two, he actually explicitly says, this is the first sign, this is the second sign, and then the next five, you just have to pay attention. But I've got them up here on the screen he changed water into wine. He healed the official's sons. He healed a paralytic at the pool. He fed 5,000. He walked on water. Don't go to the last slide quite yet. He healed a man born blind. So these are the first six uh, signs. And before I get to the seventh, I want you to think about this word, a sign. And maybe we grew up with the Bible and it's just kind of, yeah, that's what it is. It's a miracle. It's a sign. But have you ever thought about what does a sign mean? It's not just a miracle, but it's a sign. What do signs do? They point to something, right? They describe something. And some Bible scholars, they say that the first half of John, they call it the book of signs. Because what John is showing us is Jesus is stepping into our world in unexpected ways as part of God's process to recreate the world. And there are these signs that are being given to us that are pointing to what God's gonna do. And that gets us to the last sign, the seventh sign in John 11, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. 
And, and John specifies that he was somebody that Jesus loved. And, and think about this sign, that Jesus, he came into our world, into the darkness Remember that from Genesis? The darkness of the tomb, the death of our sin. And by his word, he spoke. And the dead people that he loves come back to life at his name. That's the sign that we're being given of who Jesus is. And it's not just, it's not just seven days of creation. It's not just seven signs. John loves the number seven, by the way. But Jesus also has seven statements that he makes about himself. Do you remember that from earlier, that if we believe what? In his name. And seven times Jesus makes statements about who he is. And each one of these statements begins with him saying, I am. That may not mean a ton to us in our culture today, but in Jewish culture, that was the same name that God gave to Moses. If you're familiar with the story, Moses says, who are you that's sending me? And God says, I am who I am. And in this language, it's the exact same phrase. And seven times God is saying this. It's an allusion to the fact that, that he is God himself come to our earth. And here's what Jesus says about himself. We can go to the next few slides. I am the bread of life. It's like manna in the desert. I am the light of the world. Remember creation. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And Jesus, we see these signs, we see this new creation, we see these statements he is making about himself, and it's all building. Who is this guy? What does he come? How is God going to rescue us? And there's a lot I'm having to skip over. I wish I could, I could share more of some of the individual stories from John but I wanna bring us to the night that Jesus was betrayed towards the end of the book. And what had happened, remember John said his own were unwilling to receive him. And so people, even though Jesus is coming and he's doing all these signs, raising people from the dead, still, still we were unable and unwilling to receive him. Still, we rejected the authority of God because we wanted to do things our own way. And it brings us to this incredible scene where you see this mob of people coming to arrest Jesus. It's at night. It's in the darkness. And they show up, and this is in John 18. I'm just going to summarize it. They show up and they say, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And one last time in John's gospel, Jesus says the phrase, I am. This time, there's nothing else. He's not saying, I am this, I am that. It's just simply, I am, the divine name. And when Jesus says, I am, John describes how all of these soldiers, they drew back and fell to the ground at the power of his name. Do you realize that when Jesus met his fate, he did not do it by accident. He was not overpowered, but he chose it. He stepped into our world, the very word of God that created the heavens and the earth, spoke his name, and these men who were coming to arrest him, they couldn't even stand in his presence. And still, he allowed himself to be arrested by them and carried away. There's one last major theme in John that I wanna briefly highlight, and that's the role of Jewish feast in the Gospel of John. Remember earlier we talked about him being the Lamb of God, and there's three feasts that are referenced, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Dedication, and I'm not gonna get into those. But there's also the Passover. Now, if you grew up reading the Bible, this may be familiar. If not, I'll just give you briefly uh, what this feast represented. But the, the Israelite people were in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years. And God raised up this guy named Moses 
to be a deliverer. And Moses goes to the Egyptian king called Pharaoh, and he's like, hey, let my people go. You know, you've seen the movie. Let my people go. Pharaoh says no. And 10 times God sends a plague. You know, again, it's a sign. Like, no, seriously, dude, you should let these people go. And on the 10th plague, God sends the angel of death who is gonna strike down and kill the firstborn of every house of Egypt. But God made provision of his grace for the nation of Israel. And what they did is they took a lamb, behold, the lamb of God, and they slaughtered the lamb, they killed it, they took the blood from the lamb and they painted it over the doorpost of their house. And when the angel of death came, all the people who had the blood of the lamb covering their house were rescued and saved and not killed. And then this is what delivered the people of God out of their slavery. And after this, God said, I want you to celebrate this feast every year as a reminder of what I did for you. And so every year, the Jewish people would gather in Jerusalem. Everybody was supposed to come if they were able. And they would slaughter a Passover lamb. And they would kill this lamb. And there was the symbolism of this is that death was gonna pass them over, that God was gonna deliver them from their slavery, and that by eating this lamb, that they were participating in the people of God and given a new identity. And three times in John's gospel, he goes to the Passover feast, but it's when he's killed that we see it the most clearly, what John is trying to tell us. Because if you read John's gospel really closely, you're gonna find a few things. You're gonna find um, that in Jewish culture, the priest or the leaders, they would examine the lamb and the lamb had to be without blemish or defect. And the Roman authorities examined Jesus and John is very careful to say three times that Jesus was innocent and without defect. And then it describes that Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation, which is the same day that they would kill the Passover lambs. And in fact, if you look at some of the gospels, maybe even down to the same hour that the Passover lamb was killed. And even as Jesus is dying on the cross, it says that they had to break the legs because this is what the Romans, it was a horrific way to die. They would break the legs of criminals on the cross to speed up death. But they came to break the legs of Jesus and they found that he was already dead. The Passover lamb, the Bible specifically says, you cannot break any of its bones. And John is going out of his way to tell us that none of Jesus' legs were broken. And when the soldier pierced the side of Jesus, what came pouring out of Jesus? Blood and water. And when they, when they slaughtered the Passover lamb, they would take the blood and they would use it to anoint the temple as a sign that they were under the covering of God. John is describing to us that Jesus, the way we get to a new creation, the only way we get to a new creation is we have to have the lamb of God step into our world, take on our sin, rescue us from slavery, free us from death, and it's by his blood that we become the people of God and we get to live in that new creation that he promised us, but there is no other way. The word of God became man, but even more so, the word of God became a sacrifice for us. But there's one last sign from the book of John, and this is the greatest. That this Passover lamb, the lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. He conquered sin, death, and hell. And how is it that we, the people of God, live in this new creation? It's that we come under his blood, but even more so that we live in his new life, rescued from our slavery, freed from death, and invited into a new creation in Jesus. And this is our hope. And that brings us to John 20, verse 30 and 31. It's this thesis statement of the Gospel of John. It says this, 
Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But catch this part right here. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and remember this little phrase, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why is John taking all this time, seven I am statements and seven signs and all this stuff, why is he doing all this for one reason, that you may believe in the name of Jesus and in it believing in the name of Jesus that you may have life in his name? That's why. The word believe is used almost 100 times in the Gospel of John, and you're gonna find it in almost every single story. Remember where we started today. John is giving us an invitation to swap our old story for a new story, right? Believe is not just like a mental exercise where we acknowledge something to be true. Believe means to put our trust in something. And what John is trying to say to us is put our trust in what Jesus did for you, not in your own effort to be your own God. That way doesn't work. It just leads to death. Put your trust in him and the provision he made for you. And if you do that, you're gonna find life in his name. God is giving us a new life. He's letting us walk in a new creation. This is a life lived between Christmas and a new year. It's a life where we recognize the significance of God stepping into our world, and we recognize that it's only by embracing that story that we find life any other way. And I'm not necessarily saying leaving your Christmas decorations up all year, but I do think we need a reminder again that this is our story. Now, I recognize that for many, maybe even most of you, you are familiar with this. I hope there's some fresh material and maybe some fresh inspiration to dive into God's word. Uh, maybe this week, if you've got some time, take, take a moment to set aside 30 minutes, you know, maybe three or four times and go read through the whole gospel of John. Try to do it in a few sittings. I think you're gonna find some fresh material that'll inspire you. I, but I recognize this is review for many of us in this room. But here's my question today. Is this story the story that runs in the back of your head over everything else? Because if I'm being honest with you in my own life, though I know this story, what goes through my head is often a different story. I, I acknowledge the truth of this story, but does this story shape me or am I shaped by the lesser stories the world sells me? What story shapes you? At the core of who you are, when something happens to your life, when you sit back and you reflect on 2019, when you look ahead to 2020, what story is playing in the background of your head? Is it the story that John is telling us today? Or is it some other story that our world has sold us? And every time we read the gospel, every time we come to God's word, it's meant to be a reminder to us that this is our story. That if you have believed in the name of Jesus, no matter what you feel today, no matter how intense the darkness may seem to you today, no matter any of that, this is still at the core of who you are, your story. And my prayer today is that we get reminded and that this shapes us above all else, amen? And in a few minutes here, I'm gonna go back and read a few more verses and we'll wrap up. But I do wanna take a moment because I also recognize in a room like this, there, there's people here today where this isn't your story yet. You're here at church, maybe even specifically on the new year because you wanna get right with God or you recognize something is missing in your life. I think everybody deep down inside, we acknowledge the truth that we're not very good at leading our own lives or being our own gods. That every time I try to become my own God, it just leads me to more brokenness. And I'm, I'm guessing there may be some people here today. That's why you're here at church this morning. It's because you want to get right with God. 
And this morning, I wanna offer an invitation for you specifically to believe in the name of Jesus for the first time in your life. And believe is not just, like I said earlier, it's not just a mental exercise, but it's a choice to put your trust in him and to make his story your story. And it's an incredibly significant decision because it's you choosing to say, I'm not gonna do things my own way anymore. It's not just to, to acknowledge the truth of this, but it also means to surrender and receive Jesus to receive his authority over your own authority. I don't wanna minimize the significance of that, but I still wanna offer you the invitation this morning. Are you ready to believe and find life in his name? Are you tired yet of the emptiness that this world sells you? Are you ready for him? And we're gonna pause right now in the middle of the sermon, and I'm gonna pray. And what I want everybody to do, you can just bow your heads with me. And if you have never made that decision to believe in the name of Jesus, I'm gonna invite you to repeat after me this simple prayer. And for everyone else, if you've already made the decision, just pray along in your own heart. And this prayer I'm inviting you into, it's not a magic formula, but what I'm doing is I'm just helping you talk to God. I'm helping you come to him and believe in his name like John is calling us to. So if you need Jesus this morning, just pray aloud after me. Just something like this. Lord Jesus, I need you. Just say it wherever you're at in your own chair. Lord Jesus, I need you. I confess that doing things my own way doesn't work. I confess that I have sinned against you. I've rebelled. I haven't received you. Today I say I'm sorry and I'm ready to turn and give you my whole life and surrender. Jesus, I believe in your name. I believe you died for my sin. I believe you rose again. Today, I declare that my life is yours. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer for the first time, or maybe as a rededication, I'd love to invite you at the end of the service. We'll have some friends up here at the front who are praying for people. Come tell somebody the prayer you prayed. Let us help you learn what it means to live in this new story. But I wanna end our time by going back to the Gospel of John in verse 20. Because I think it's really powerful to see how this all ties together. All these different themes we've been talking about when we talk about a new creation. And in verse 20, verse one, I want you to notice a few things. This is describing the resurrection after Jesus, the Lamb of God, was killed. It says this, that on the first day of the week, do you remember what we talked about earlier, the week of creation? And it's verse one, I think we have it on the screen. On the first day of the week. And John even says, when it was still dark. So he's painting the picture for us. It's the beginning of a new week. In other words, it's the beginning of a new creation. Not just that, but it's at that moment of the day when it's dark, but light is piercing the darkness for the first time. It's all these themes we've been talking about. In the resurrection of Jesus, we're entering into a new creation. And where are we when this is all happening? You actually have to go back a few verses to 1941, John 1941, where else would we be? We're in a garden. You remember how Genesis began in the garden and it ended in the wilderness. It began with the life of God and it ended with death. Well, John, it begins in the wilderness, but where does it end? It ends in the garden. It began with man under the sentence of death, but it ends with God's eternal life. And who was the first person to see Jesus in the garden? It's Mary of Magdalene. 
Do you remember Eve was the first person to be deceived? And what did she do when she was deceived? She went and told Adam. Mary was the first person to see truth. And what did she do when she saw Jesus? She went and told the disciples. Do you realize the story of a new creation is every broken thing, God is restoring it and making it new. Every place of sin, every place we screwed up the world, God is coming and putting it back to right. Why? Because he's recreating the world through the person of Jesus. And how does Jesus appear to Mary in verse 15? How else? He's a gardener. You remember the mission that God gave us to cultivate his world? What he's saying to us is, even though you jacked everything else, I, by my death, burial, and resurrection, am offering you the opportunity to step back into what I've always called you to be. And John 20, 22, I think, is the ultimate restoration where he gathers his disciples and he bends down. I just picture this moment in my mind and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Do you remember Genesis 2 when God breathed into us the breath of life, the breath of life that was lost because of our sin? Jesus has restored it to us again through the death and resurrection of him. It's a new creation. Guys, this is your story. The breath of God is in you if you've given your heart to Jesus. You don't have to live under the brokenness of the world anymore. I'm not saying everything's gonna be perfect. I recognize that we haven't seen the fullness yet of this new creation, but I still believe this is our story. What would 2020 look like if we believed this to be true? What would 2020 look like if this story shaped us more than any other story? Yes, there's darkness in this world. I get it. There's death, there's destruction, and I know for some of us that we feel that very intensely right now, but that does not change the reality that the breath of God flows through you today. That does not change the reality that you're alive in him, a new creation. Amen.